Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Normally when the Lakers play in the playoffs, they lead the show. I mean, that goes without saying. If the Lakers are in the postseason and they play, they're the start of the very next show. Like, I'm in SoCal. They're the defending champs. They've got LeBron. They had a critical game in Phoenix. You know, they're polarizing. You love them. You hate them. So for all of those reasons, no matter what happens in that game, whatever the game is, win, lose, close game, beat down, they get the jungle treatment right off the top. And yes, they did play last night. And in the words of the late Pat Tillman, and I like to pick my spots carefully with this, but in the words of the late Pat Tillman, that was a nice, swift ass-kicking. Nice, swift ass-kicking. And they were on the wrong end of that nice, swift ass-kicking. Nice, swift ass-kicking. So the fact that that happened in the postseason, in a critical game, makes it a no-brainer for me to open the show with, right? Nope, not where I'm starting. The Lakers are not leading the show today because they got run the hell right out of the gym, and that game was over moments after it started. Meanwhile, Portland v. Denver was every bit as epic as the Lakers v. Suns was horrible because Portland-Denver was that good. Game five was that good. And not just a good game good, it was one of the best games you'll ever see. Good. That's how good that was. An instant classic. A session where you're blowing up all your friends on the phone saying, man, are you watching this? Are you seeing this? Are you getting that? It was double OT, and even that does not begin to do it justice. And while I've seen Damian Lillard do things that nobody else could even imagine or dream of doing, Dame was doing things last night that I've never seen before. Not from him, and not from anybody else for that matter. Hell, no less an authority than Kevin Durant took to Twitter, which is normally not a good idea. But he took to Twitter, suggesting that he was not watching a game, but rather, quote, a spiritual experience. So you've got one future Hall of Famer to another saying that watching him play was a spiritual experience. Like, that's how insane Dame was last night. One of the best to ever do it is out here admitting that he found religion while watching Dame light it up. And while usually he is wrong, I mean, in this case, Durant was not. Because Dame was in his bag. And that game had absolutely everything. But it did not start out that way. Not at all. That's the crazy thing about last night. The Blazers were getting hammered early on. They were down 15 in the first quarter. They were down 22 in the second quarter. At that point, I would not have blamed you if you changed the channel and moved on to something else. Except if you know anything about Dame and that crew, that's not what you do. Because these dudes have way too much pride to shut it down. Way too much pride to even say, hey, you know what? It's not our night. It's not worth it. Let's rest, recover, and live to fight another day. That's just not their deal. That's not how they're built. Not with that talent, not with that coach, and most of all, not with that guy Dame leading from the front. No way Dame quits. No way he lets anybody around him shut it down either. They just kept chopping. They kept banging away. Next thing you know, that 22-point deficit is down to 7 in the fourth quarter. But even down 7, 
on the road against a team with the likely MVP, man, that's still a tough, tough ask. But they stay in the fight. They keep grinding. Down three with just under 10 seconds left. Dame does this. Like, that's a three from 28 feet out to tie it and send that game to overtime. And the thing about that shot wasn't even that he made it from 28 feet out. It's that everybody knew he was going to take that shot. And everybody knew he was going to make that shot. Like, there wasn't a person in that building or watching at home who didn't think that guy wasn't going to make that shot. Because in these situations, Dame is inevitable. Inevitable. And even though regulation had just ended, that game was just starting. And while this is mostly about Dame and the absurd showing he had last night, two things are worth pointing out. One, the Denver Nuggets did win that game. They did take a 3-2 series lead. Two, the Denver Nuggets are tough as hell. And they get that from their head coach, Michael Malone. If you give up a 22-point lead and then Dame hits a 28-footer to send it to OT, normally you lose that game in OT. Rare is the team that comes back from getting its soul snatched, and that's exactly what happened in that moment. What I'm saying is this. Dame went all Cal in Vegas on the Nuggets. Like, he ripped their heart right out of their chest he showed it to them, and he made them eat it. I'm going to rip that beard off your face and make you eat it. I'm going to rip that heart right out your chest and make you eat it. You at the airport. I'm going to rip that beard off your face and make you eat it. Except Denver was not about to eat that. Or a crow sando. Or choke on Mama Cass's ham sandwich. Or any of that. Or Hud's bug. Romy, I saw this beautiful June bug, and I popped it in my mouth, and it tasted just like bacon. It was beautiful. Anyway, they were not giving in, not with Michael Malone on that bench, not with the guys he had on that floor. They jump out to a nine-point lead in overtime. Monte Morris and Austin Rivers were putting on a show. At that point, it looked like it was Portland's turn to get crushed and deflated. Their turn to run out of gas, slam into the wall. Except that wasn't happening. It just wasn't. Not last night. Because down nine, Dame had an old school three-point play, followed by a 31-footer, and then a 29-foot step back. That's right. A shot that was listed in the play-by-play for all of eternity as a 29-foot step back. Damian Lillard has a 29-foot step back in his bag. Morris had a chance to ice it at the line, a couple of free throws, but he missed the second. So again, here comes Portland, down three. Alvin pushed the roll button. Here he comes again. Lillard. Steps back, fires. Takes it in again. Oh, my goodness. I, I cannot believe what I'm witnessing here, partner. Dame sends it to double OT. You knew it was coming. Everybody knew it was coming, and yet it still did. And there was nothing Denver can do about it. 
Like, I don't know if Dame doesn't feel pressure or if Dame feels it and likes it. Either way, he's just a different dude in those moments. He's different from everyone who's ever come before him. And again, that's not just me. John Morant tweeted at one point last night, WTF Dame. That pretty much summed it all up, right? WTF Dame. Because this isn't just some team of slaps that he was doing it to. He was doing it to a damn good Nuggets team on the road in a critical playoff game. And yet he still wasn't even done. He had the first bucket of double OT. And when Joker responded with a three, Dame responded with yet another one of his own. Here in game five. That is Denver. Slow this guy down. Lillard launches. He bites it in. Wow. I mean, this dude. At that point, he's just in video game mode. It's not human. Malone said afterwards, quote, Damian Lillard was superhuman. I mean, Damian Lillard was... Uh, superhuman. Super true. Again, a reminder, the Denver Nuggets won that game. But Dame is getting this entire take. And that's not about disrespecting the Nuggets because you know I love them. It's about hyping Dame. Last night was just one of those nights. Kevin Durant broke out the full government on Twitter. Quote, I had like four tweets I wanted to write to describe this masterpiece by Damian Lamonte Ollie Lillard Sr. But I'm seriously at a loss for words. End of quote. The amazing thing is, Denver was hanging with him. He was a one-man army, but they were a team. And you could not find a better evidence of that than on this play that finally, finally gave Denver the lead for good. Great play by Gordon. Attack that offensive glass. Give your team another opportunity. Here's Jokic to skip. Porter for three. Got it. Michael Porter Jr., if you need him, and they never needed him more than they did last night. That's why Michael Malone challenged him before the game, and it worked. The shot was perfect. The pass was even better. I mean, just an absolutely stupid pass from Joker. Throwing it from a double team, lofting it over a third defender, into a perfect spot for MPJ to fire. This guy's passing is just unreal. Unfortunately for Portland, it all fell apart at that point. You had this from Robert Covington. And Austin Rivers says, come over here and help me. Lillard dump it into Covington. He missed the dunk. Missed the dunk. Can't have that. That can't happen. Uh Uh-oh. And then this from my guy C.J. McCollum. Blazers have a timeout. They don't take it. Steps out of bounds there. Not even close. Uh-oh. A missed dunk and an accidental step out of bounds at the absolute worst times. I mean, those are mistakes that will happen. Those are mistakes that might even be a result of fatigue, which is understandable given the circumstances. But that is gut-wrenching from a Portland perspective, given that Damian dragged them all into overtime and then double overtime, and they had a couple of breakdowns, and then... It's over. CJ admitted it and owned it. It's a shame. Uh, We wasted uh, one of the best performances you'll probably see in the playoffs. That's true. Brutal to lose a playoff game on those two plays because that was one of the best performances you will ever see in the playoffs. 
That was one of the best performances you will ever see in any game, ever. 55 points in a playoff game, eighth player in history to do that, set a playoff record for threes in a game with 12, became the first player ever with 55 points and 10 or more assists. I can keep going. But as Dame himself would tell you, scoreboard, it does not matter what I did because we lost that game. It don't matter. We lost the game. Dang, that hurts. You want to hear something absolutely amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year automatically with no limit on how much you can earn. Now, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you consider all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So, when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. Discover.com slash yes. 2021 Nielsen Report. Limitations do apply. Josiah Johnson. Josiah, what's going on? How are you? What's up, Jim? Appreciate you for that that beautiful intro, man. It's great to great to link up with you again. Come full circle. We here, man. We uh, we have come full circle, and my man, you earned that. You earned that intro. So it's been a minute or two since you were on the set of our Showtime show. How you been doing, man? What's life like for you right about now? Uh, I'm just running these numbers up, trying to dominate the social game. Really let people know what it is. You know, enjoying these, these Lakers most of the time, and you know, just loving life. I like that. All right, so why don't we be specific about that? You're enjoying these Lakers most of the time, except I'm guessing not last night. What was going through your head as you watched that game unfold last night? Uh, what's going through my mind watching that is obviously the team missed AD. You know, AD is, you know, LeBron brought him in for a reason. AD wasn't able to play. LeBron had a shaky game. Obviously, after game four, he said he's going to put the team on his shoulders. Wasn't necessarily the case. If it was a five-game series, I think Lakers fans would be really concerned right now because it would be our offseason. Thankfully, we get to come back to Staples get to redeem ourselves in game six, hopefully go back to Phoenix in game seven and keep this ship going. But really just going to be contingent on AD getting it together. And if he can't go, LeBron's got to pick up the slack and some of these other guys got to step up. Josiah Johnson joining us. You know, I mentioned this right before he came on. I'm really careful about ever, ever questioning a guy's toughness or heart or mentality or grit or anything like that. I mean, who the hell am I to do that? Charles Barkley had no problem hitting AD with a street clothes handle. What's your reaction to that? Uh, my thing is, look, I got nothing but love and respect for AD, and, you know, obviously he, he's battling a groin injury right now. My thing is just, if, if that's the case, I don't know why he's on the bench during the game. It seems like he could use that two and a half, three hours to be getting treatment, stay in L.A., whatever it may be. Obviously made the trip to Phoenix to see if he could play, realized he couldn't go, then just chill in the locker room and get that deep shoe massage, what else needs to go on. So you kind of see him on the bench trying to rally and motivate guys, but it's like, hey, we're out here playing, and you're chilling, bro, so... Hopefully, you know, the injury isn't as, is as bad as we think, and, uh, you know, he can get it back together for game six. But, you know, get that treatment. You don't need to be on the bench in those situations watching that drumming. You can be in the back getting ready for game six. You're exactly right, man. You got to get that treatment round the clock. Now, you posed the question on Twitter last night. How will LeBron haters feel when the Lakers win in seven? Break that down for me. How do you see that going, and then how painful would that be for the LeBron haters if it does play out like that? Well, Jim, as you know, everything is really constructed on people just trying to bring LeBron down and hate on, you know, talking about the Lakers having 71 days off after winning the championship in the bubble, easily the hardest championship in NBA history, you know, the most unideal conditions in the midst of a pandemic. You know, the NBA needed to make their money, so it was a short layoff. They come back. LeBron obviously gets hurt. AD gets hurt. This team didn't really have a lot of time to play together, but I feel like people are more having LeBron loses as opposed to their team winning, and it's just a sad state of what – kind of the basketball game has become. I mean, you look at a guy like LeBron James, everything he's done for the game, four championships, 
four finals MVPs, four MVPs, just being a great ambassador, always speaking up, you know, using his voice and platform to raise awareness. And you got people calling him Lebozo, LeMickey. And it's like, you know, you got 500 different condescending nicknames for a guy who's been nothing but great for the game of basketball. And now he's on the Lakers, too. So obviously add that just the Lakers hate that just permeates in, in people's minds and brains from, you know, one of the most successful franchise in NBA history. The game is a game. As LeBron fans, we've dealt with this. We've been in this situation before. We've been down 3-2 before. It's not really a big deal to us, you know, I think. But you just see kind of how the Internet gives them a frenzy after he loses game five as if that's it. And they realize that that's their time to get their jokes in because it won't last. Josiah Johnson is joining us. All right, so what do you make of what you saw last night? Like LeBron, first of all, do you think that the way he came out, did you expect him to be more aggressive? Did he seem, and again, I'm not putting this on him, but did he seem passive at all to you? Did you expect him to attack the basket more than he did? Or is that pretty much what you expected? No, I think, I mean, look, LeBron's 36 years old, obviously year 18. His body's not the same. As LeBron fans, we kind of still think he's in his prime, and he still gets treated that way. He's an older player now. Obviously, we were expecting him after he made that comment about putting the team on his shoulders to drop a 40 or 50 piece. But it seemed early on in the game he was trying to facilitate, get guys into a good rhythm, and guys were simply just not making open shots. You know, I mean, I think only two players scored in double figures on the Lakers in that game. Guys were missing opportunities. It is what it is. LeBron kind of came on in the second half, obviously, once the game was already decided. But even for him, I want to say he was like 3 for 10 in the first half with three turnovers. So it wasn't his best performance. But, again, these are just one game. If it was an elimination game, obviously there would be a lot more to discuss today. But it wasn't. It was game five. There's a game six in Staples. We're coming back to L.A. And, you know, I think the NBA is really hungry for a game seven considering, you know, the situation they're in now. They're trying to get these bags and make this bread back up from the, from the uh, shortened season last year and the shortened season this year. So, I would expect the game seven. I would expect LeBron to come out with a lot more energy and fight now that he's back in L.A. And uh, we will see. We'll find out tomorrow. Follow him on Twitter at KingJosiah54. Listen, if that was not his best, we may have seen the worst from Dennis Schroeder. Like, what got into him last night? I get that you're not always going to have your best game. Not every shot's going to fall. But what did you think watching him last night? Uh, Schroeder, Schroeder, honestly, he's kept us in this series, so it's hard. As Lakers fans, we kind of do this thing where we we bully our players to greatness. You know, we did it with KCP last year in the bubble and damn near willed him to a finals MVP. So Schroeder, you know, came in. He he didn't take the the Lakers' $80 million offer. He wanted to bet on himself. He wanted something in the $100 million range. I think at this point, what he's doing, that's probably not going to warrant that. But look, you know, guys have bad games. They go through tough spells. I'm just more – it's hard when you're seeing guys have open threes and they're deferring or they're, they're doing that hesitation. You've seen it with Julius Randle with, with the Knicks. And you can just tell the Hooper that these guys are thinking too much. They're overthinking. They're not just playing the game, playing in the flow. And they don't trust their shots. So they've got literally a day to figure it out. I think they're practicing today. So they got a day to figure it out. But these guys are professionals. They're, they're, they're well-paid. Schroeder was, you know, in the running for sixth man of the year. You know what I mean? So it's, it, he's got it in him. He's got a potential to really step to the plate and, and do it. So we just really got to get it together, lock in, and, uh, you know, bring it back for game six. All right, so it's obvious how, how strongly you feel about the L.A. Lakers. Josiah, what about the Clippers? When they lost the first two games against the Mavericks, the slander was flying thick and it was fast. How much better is life when the Clippers' slander is strong? Look, I'm an L.A. guy, and I know people people hate to, to see this. And Jim, you know, my dad played for the Clippers back in the day, so I'm a LeBron fan over everything. But I like L.A. sports teams to perform well. It's just for me a pride thing. And, you know, Luka came in, smacked those dudes around, you know, went up to up. But Clippers got it back, went to Dallas, you know, got the series back. You're talking about Kawhi and PG. These are guys that even if they play for the Clippers, you have to respect them. Kawhi is a superstar in this league, and PG is a star in this league. 
that they're not just going to lay down and just let Luca, you know, let a 22-year-old kid just, just have at him. They're going to have some pride and some respect for themselves. But, you know, slander is slander, and that's the great part about NBA Twitter from game to game. You know, anything can happen. So after game five, the Lakers lose. Obviously, Suns and LeBron haters are getting their jokes off. Game six will be a different story. And the same thing with the Clippers. They, they, they're now coming back to L.A., looking to really, you know, potentially put this thing away going up 3-2. But at the end of the day, you know, as a LeBron fan, as a Lakers fan, you want to see that Lakers-Clippers-Western Conference final showdown. I think it would be amazing for the city, you know, amazing for everything we got going on here. So I don't go in like, oh, I hope the Clippers swept. I'm just more of a reactionary tweeter. Whatever happens, I'm going to react to. But, you know, definitely have respect for that franchise and what Steve Ballmer's been able to do in picking up the pieces from, uh, you know, a terrible garbage human being and Donald Sterling and everything he represented. So you want to see, I want to see that Lakers-Clippers showdown. I really want LeBron and Kawhi to face off at least one more time before it's all said and done for LeBron. So, you know, we'll see, we'll see what happens tonight. But Luka's a beast. You know, we'll see what's up with that same coin injury. If he can, uh, if he can bring it back to Porzingis can uh, be a serviceable NBA player. Josiah Johnson joining us. You mentioned your dad played for the Clippers. Josiah, for those who know or don't know, you're the son of Marcus Johnson, the National Player of the Year. He was national champion at UCLA. He was a five-time NBA All-Star. What was it like growing up the son of a legend? Uh, it, was, it was honestly, it wasn't, you didn't think about it. Like, you know, for me, it was just, this was what normal life was. And I see guys like, like Steph growing up with Dell and being in arenas and just kind of how it went. Like, you know, I was, I was there for, toward the tail end of his career. It's funny, I didn't really get to see him play at a high level. When I was like four years old, he ended up suffering pretty much what was a career-ending neck injury when he ran into Benoit Benjamin's stomach and broke his neck. So I always had this impression of my pops that he was washed. Like, you know, we would play one-on-one, and I would give him, you know, beat him 10-5, whatever it was, just give him these hands. But later on in life, I would see kind of just how people revered him, obviously watching the Last Dance documentary last year with Jordan. With the, We always knew Jordan had the, the poster on his wall in his college dorm. But that was our first time seeing the soundbite of just how much, you know, he respected and loved my dad. And he even almost signed with Adidas because of it. So just knowing those things, and, and now my dad looks to make a push into the Hall of Fame, you know, it took me even a long time to realize just how much of an amazing player he was. You know, I was around for the white man can't jump and the acting and all that good stuff. But just to go back and look at his basketball resume, you know, originating the term point forward, he wasn't the first point forward, he just coined the term. But taking that position now, you guys like LeBron James are out here running with it. But just to see the impact that he had on the game, he's definitely deserving of the Hall of Fame, and we're going to keep fighting hard to get him there as soon as possible. Cool as hell, too, man. Cool as hell. Great game, great rap. I always liked your pop quite a bit. So the topic came up on Out of Pocket recently. What is the worst fan base in the NBA? Where do you come out on that? Uh, Got to be Celtics or Warriors. I think, you know, Warriors fans, you know, they live in this delusion of the old days. And the thing about the old days, they're the old days. And, yes, you know, that team got Kevin Durant and they went on to become a dynasty. Now, you know, it's, just, it's crazy for me to see because as a LeBron fan, we've seen every variation of the squad. We've seen them take a, you know, a trash squad to the finals in 07. So this is nothing new for us. But to now see kind of how they, they place the blame on everybody but Steph going into this season. Steph obviously had one of the greatest offensive, you know, seasons of all time. And they were a top five defense and they can't make the playoffs and the excuses fly. It's a rec league team, it's a church league team, so just a lot of excuses. And their fans are super young and emotional. So when you get into discussions with them, if you ask the basketball question, they try to make it personal and evolve into that. And Celtics fans obviously, as you know, just you know, even with Kyrie, hey, can we just get a little bit of respect and, and, and what that turned into and, and now you got guys standing for the lucky the logo, which is one of the most absurd things I think I've seen in sports history. Like, you know, as many they literally do an opening jump on that logo. Many, many shoes and feet and squeaks 
And yeah, Kyrie's feeling some type of way. He stepped on the logo. And then now I see that franchise imploding and obviously going crazy on Twitter today. It's an interesting sight. But for me, I, I, you know, I monitor all facets of NBA Twitter and everything going on in the world. And I'd say those two fan bases are probably you know, on, on the lower end of the spectrum. So, Josiah, I've got about 60 seconds. Do you think Steph ends his career with Golden State? And if not, where will he be? I like to make the joke that Steph's coming to the Lakers, but I think Steph is, uh, you know, he loves the Bay. He's loyal. I think they obviously can give him the most money. So I feel like they'll get that shit righted very soon. Clay coming back from injury. They got Draymond. Hopefully Wiseman develops into a, you know, a serviceable, serviceable big man, or they make a move with that pick. But I feel like that squad has enough to compete once Clay comes back. And I think Steph is loyal to his soil. So, you know, the Warriors, the Warriors drafted him. I feel like he wants to stay with that franchise. However, you know, if this season, you know, I'm curious to see what he does in signing that, that extension. And if, if this season that they can't deliver a, a winning product, I'm sure he'll have to consider some things. And obviously the Lakers and playing with LeBron would be a great destination. We've seen guys team up, MVPs team up. You know, they happened in, it happened in uh, Golden State, but why not with the Lakers? He's a writer. He is a producer. He's a co-creator of Legends of Chamberlain Heights. Played his college ball at UCLA. A producer on our Showtime show back in the day. So, Josiah, it's official, man. You're right. We have come full circle. You crushed your Jungle debut. Let's make sure we do it again soon, man. You're doing great. I'm proud of you. Great job, man. Really good to have you on. Appreciate you, Rome. Thank you for having me. A different future starts with you. That's why GoDaddy does more than help you find a name. You can create, sell, and get found online. So any small business could be a driving force to create change or build an empire. We know old ideas aren't cutting it anymore. So we're calling for a new generation of thinking. Your way of thinking. So whatever you have in mind that will help make a different future, find everything you need to get started at GoDaddy.com. Because the future isn't decided yet. It's up to us to make it happen. Start different at GoDaddy.com. Tito Ortiz is an MMA Hall of Famer. And he headlined some of the biggest UFC fights. And did so for a long time over the course of a 22-year career. Yet I can also guarantee that I've spent more time, despite the fact that he is a legend of that game, I can guarantee that I've spent more time talking about him in the last six months outside of the cage than I ever did at any point that he was inside of the cage. Like, I've talked more about him over the last six months than I have the last two decades. And that's because Tito's stint as a local politician in his hometown of Huntington Beach has been a non-stop factory of content. And for the final time, here are the quick bullet points. It was the summer of 2020. Tito announced his candidacy for HB City Council. He ran on the, ca- the platform with the premise of, quote, making Huntington Beach safe again. In an amazing twist of fate, a jungle legend named Silkbra ran against him and got absolutely rolled up in a surf city tsunami in the process, ragdolled with 4% of the vote. Meanwhile, Tito sets a city record for votes received in an election, and he assumes vice mayor status in early December. Tito, taking his oath of office, went viral, but for all the wrong reasons. But then again, so did everything after that. Nothing went right. He picked a fight with his mayor, the esteemed and honorable Kim Carr. He picked a fight with a local small business during a pandemic. He picked a fight with his own kid's school district after using them as political props. 
And in the background of all this, there were and still are reports that Tito has been claiming unemployment payments despite very much being employed by John Q. Taxpayer. Oh, and the city council held an emergency meeting less than 90 days into his tenure and threatened to strip him of vice mayor status if he did not shape up. Now, zoom out for a second. And remember that all of this has happened in the span of about five and a half months. That's a pretty small window to make that amount of news. Unfortunately, none of it was good news. I don't think I even know the name of the mayor of the city in which I reside. I sure as hell have not seen them on the internet for all the wrong reasons every week since Christmas. I'm pretty sure mayors and the city council members are rather anonymous in nature because their gig is all about public service, not about public stunts. Well, just like the Jay Cutler chicken serial killer beat that I covered to its conclusion, This thread from HB City Hall also has an ending because last night, Tito tapped. I'm resigning from my position as Mayor Pro Tem, City Councilman. From day one, I was met with hostility and judgment. To be sole focus of character assassination each and every week, to put it simply, this job isn't working for me. I'm sorry to let down many of my supportive HB constituents, and I pray they'll understand. Sincerely, Tito Ortiz. Hey, listen, believe this. I'm not here to river dance on the grave of Tito's 176-day political career. I mean, hell, even Dasmati lasted longer than that. I'm not here to point out that he lasted one-eighth of the term that he swore he'd serve. I mean, honestly, frankly, nothing he did affected me in the slightest. I don't live in HP. I don't vote in HP. In fact, I only started to cover this story because the content gods forced my hand when they pitted Nark Bra against Tito Bra in a story that was simply too good to be true last year. And then the story started unfolding in the most incredible ways. Like if I had told you back then when Brad first brought it to light that Silk was diming on volleyball players. If I had told you back then that less than a year later, Tito would quit the gig six months into it and that Silk would be in charge of the trailer parks, would you have believed me? What would you have said? I mean, this is by far one of the most insane beats ever, considering where it started, where we are now, and who the characters are that are involved. And I don't know if it's over now, But it feels like it is now that Tito is stepping down. And I know you all want my take on his resignation speech, but frankly, I'm not here for that. I'm not here to pile on. He tried something. It didn't work. He walked away. And both he and HP will be better for him making that choice. Why would I want to tattoo a dude for doing the right thing for both him and his city? So no. I'm not going to point out that he said that he was the victim of, quote, character assassination. And that character assassination and character suicide are very different things. And that he literally brought all of that upon himself. And if anybody was a victim of assassination, it was that local burger joint that he slandered and tried to boycott in the midst of a pandemic when everybody was doing everything in their power to keep their small businesses going. 
And no, I'm not going to take him to task for saying that he feels like his family is in danger just two weeks after using his family for political theater and broadcasting it on social media. And no, I sure as hell am not going to tell him, scoreboard, look up at it, the Judy's won. Discharge the Judy's. I'm not doing that. What I am doing is putting a bow on a thread that we've been working for a long time. Trust me, if you know anything about me and this program, the last thing that I want to do is talk politics. I don't do it. I haven't done it. And I never, ever want to do local politics on my national sports talk show. But how can I ignore a story that stars a very famous athlete in a very famous surf town, also involving a very famous caller to this program, making headlines? I mean, this story, not the part about narc bra, but the story is on Yahoo Sports, TMZ, CBS, MMA Junkie, the LA Times, just to name a few of the several dozen outlets that are covering it. So here's what I will say. I've got all the faith in the world that the honorable, esteemed, distinguished mayor, Kim Carr, will do what she's always done. Lead from the front and make Huntington Beach better and a little less viral going forward because I think we're all rooting for this town to stay out of the news for a while. And I'm a fan of almost every beach town around here, including HB. But it would be nice for them to kind of chill out for a bit, not get so viral. They've got the right mayor. This is important now. They've got the right mayor. And maybe almost as important, they've got the right trailer park supervisor and they've got one less newsmaker on the city council going forward now can we all do that can we look ahead and can we move forward and can we get back to the good old days of tito getting into a war of words with chael sonnen and not with his own hometown tito go ahead tell him what i do so well well he talks well His mouth has gotten him in every fight, big fight that he's had. Tito always says, I'm using my mouth to get my opportunities. The only person I know that made money using their mouth is his ex-wife. Well, just to correct you, I was never no marriage. You're a f- punk, dude. <laughs> that's, what you call, that's what you call class right here compared to no class. That was a nasty line. No class. Me. No class at all. No class. They don't call you the bad guy for nothing. A bad girl. An absolutely amazing exchange. An amazing exchange. You've probably all thought this at one time or another. You know, I'm not going very far. I'm in a rush. It's too uncomfortable. Sometimes I just forget. Hey, listen, do not kid yourself. There is no such thing as a good excuse for not buckling up. If you have used any of these excuses or any others, you are putting yourself at risk of injury or death. In 2019, nearly 10,000 people were unbuckled when they were killed in crashes. That's 43% of people killed in motor vehicle crashes that were not wearing seatbelts. So no matter what kind of a car you drive, wearing your seatbelt is the best defense in a crash. Even when you sit in the back seat, you still need to buckle up. That goes for when you ride in taxis and you use ride-sharing services too. 
Law enforcement is on the lookout and writing tickets. Why would you take the risk? Seatbelts save lives. Do the smart thing. Buckle up every single trip, day or night. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. I am speaking of Bill Cower. Bill, it's so good to have you on the program. Bill, how are you? Doing great, Romy. How are you doing? Good, good. Bill, there's so much I want to talk to you about, but why don't we start with the book, Heart and Steel. How does it feel to have it out there in the world and to be a published author? Well, you know what, Romy? I, it really goes back to uh, last year when I got inducted in the Hall of Fame that Saturday night. It makes you reflect on your football life, and all of a sudden you have all these plans, the pandemic hits, and everything comes to a still standstill. And it made me reflect on my life. And so I, I really thought at that time, I was thinking about writing a book. I said, is this, is this the right time to write a book with everything that was going on? And so I had to find the right collaborator with, and I was able to find Michael Hawley. And ironically, Michael Hawley went to Point Park College, which is in Pittsburgh, grew up in Northeast Ohio. And, and I met with him and, and um, I said, listen, Michael, um, I don't want to write a football book. I really want to write a book that's about football family and one's life journey of lessons learned. And basically, that's what we did. We did it chronologically from my time growing up in Pittsburgh to where I am today uh, you know, with my, my new wife, V, and uh, working on the CBS set with uh, my new CBS family. So in between, there's, there's a lot that I shared, more, most personal I've ever been. And, uh, and I think it's a book people will enjoy reading. We're talking to Bill Cowher. Bill, I wanted to make that point, and I'm glad that you said that yourself, that you could have written a book, and it could have been just about football, and it would have been a great book. This feels much more like a memoir, and as you yourself said, quote, I revealed more about myself than I have before. I'm curious, was it comfortable to reveal that much about yourself, or was that challenging at times? What was that part like? Oh, it was very, it was a little bit of everything, the gambit of emotions, uh, Jim, when you sit down and think about getting raised up and you know, I, there were times I was laughing. Uh, there was times I was crying through the course of this book with Michael Hawley. There's times it provoked thought and also made me sit back and reflect a little bit and made me realize how many people were so important and who I am today, particularly my parents, my mother, my father, uh, the impact that Marty Schottenheimer has had on me, that Dan Rooney has had on me. But even more importantly than that, the women that, that have been in my life. Uh, I've been so instrumental in who I am, and they've given me the balance that I've needed. You know, life is about transitioning from one phase of life to another. It's about having balance in your life and having proper perspective. And I really do believe that my late wife, my current uh, K, my current wife V, my three daughters, and even my mentors, Marty Schottenheimer and Dan Rooney, their wives were very, very a big part of their lives as well. And so I just knew that family was such a big part of having the balance and having the right perspective on how you live your life, how you work one's job. And I kind of approach that the same way. Honestly, I love that. I love that statement that it was so much about the women in your life. And I'm going to ask you about that in a moment. Bill Cowher is my guest. He is the author of Heart and Steel. It's a brand new book which came out yesterday. You know, Bill, talking football for just a couple of moments, take me back a little bit. Like, what do you remember about being named head coach of the Steelers at the age of 34? Well, I was... So interesting. I remember when Mr. Rooney, uh, Dan Rooney, offered me the job. Kay and I were in Pittsburgh for our second interview. We went back to Kansas City, and I remember that night just laying there. I'm thinking, wow, if I don't screw this up, I can go back to my 20th high school class reunion as a head coach <laughs> of my hometown team. And so my first goal was just not to get fired in the first three years. And, and 
ironically enough, the 20th high school class reunion we had, which was in 1995, was the year we went to the Super Bowl. We were just coming off an AFC loss to the San Diego Chargers. And I went to this reunion, and we, it, was a, it, was a river, it was a river cruise. It was a gateway clipper going down to Monongahela. And I thought, okay, this ought to be cool. But then I get on the, I get on the cruise, I realize I can't get off the boat. So I'm going on that boat for three hours with all my buddies who are telling me what I did wrong in a San Diego Charger game, what I should have done better, wow. how they could help me next year get over the hump. I'm thinking, I kept looking at my watch, how much longer do I have on this cruise? Uh-huh. So it was, uh, um, it, was, it was a blessing to be able to go back to my hometown. Most importantly, though, uh, Romy, for my parents, to be able to see their grandparents, their, their grandkids grow up. And for me, to have my kids grow up kind of the same way I did. Uh, the core values that you learn from that city, the hard work, the pride, the humility, um, you know, the expectation and tradition that, that's there. And, and so um, to this day, I'm so proud to be from Crafton, Pennsylvania. And it's still a big part of who I am. We are joined right now by a studio analyst for NFL Today. He is also a Hall of Famer. He's got a brand new book out. It's called Heart and Steel. It came out yesterday. We were speaking with Bill Cowher. You know, Bill, because I've worked on that show, I've heard you talk about Ben Roethlisberger on the air and off the air. And certainly nothing off the air that you wouldn't say on the air. But you obviously have a lot of experiences with Ben. I'm curious, though, what was it like the first time you met him? And what was the draft evaluation process like when you first saw him in person what was that encounter like how did he come off to you well you know we had we interviewed all three of the quarterbacks we interviewed philip rivers uh, uh eli manning and ben and they were the top three coming in there we were picking 12th i wasn't sure if somebody was going to fall down to us i didn't think that they would but i think when you looked at uh, philip and you looked at eli at the time you know they they, they were very mature their, 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 their fathers were coaches they were four-year players um, they could be the face of your franchise, no question. Ben came in, first thing you question, okay, Miami of Ohio, quality of play. You watched him, and, you know, okay, he's got a strong arm. He's pretty athletic. But then when you talk with him, you know, he, was, he had a little bit of a chip on his shoulder, and, and understandably so. So we talked to him a couple times, and I think the thing you came away with was the fact that, you know, being able to be the face of, your, of the organization, I think Philip Rivers and Eli Manning, it was going to be easy for them to step into doing that. Uh, for Ben, it might be something to be perfect. He'll sit behind Tommy Maddox and for a year and kind of get a feel for the system. And when he came into the first mini camp, I know the first thing I did. I number one, you see him in a uniform, like wow, this guy is really big. He's very athletic. He can kick the ball left-footed. I said, wow, this guy is more athletic when I start running some of the plays than I ever imagined him to be. And so. It'll be perfect for him to sit behind Charlie Batch and Tommy Maddox. Well, Charlie Batch gets hurt in the preseason. Okay, well, he'll be back by week four. And, okay, well, then, you know, Ben, with limited amount of plays, he can back up Tommy Maddox for the first four weeks, and we'll just make sure he doesn't have to do too much. Well, then Tommy Maddox goes down in week two. And then week three and four, we put him into the lineup. And you know what, Rummy? It just, we gave him a little bit of time. But the one thing you saw with him when he first got on the field was his ability to see the field, his ability not to have anything be too big for him. You know, he did have a little bit of that chip on his shoulder. He, he, he played street ball so many times, and yet he was always making pretty much the right decisions. And so, you know, we took him, and as he came in and won his first 15 games, tried to continue to, to give him some instruction about, you know, you should be doing this and this. But, you know, and I, he'd walk out of my meeting with me, and like, I'd be critiquing him about you should be in check down. You go, you go through the right progressions. He walk out. He goes, "We won, right, coach?" I go, "Yeah, we won, but just listen to what I'm saying." 
Then I get down and tell Ken, what's happening? Make sure you tell Ben, I'm not that upset. So just keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> right. Keep, keep going out. Throw, go, go, run to your right, throw the ball across the field, a plug skill burst. It wasn't by design. Improvisation was a big part of what he wanted to do and how he wanted to play the game. And he did give us plays that were unscripted. And for the first time, having a quarterback that was comfortable enough, confident enough, and made those right decisions, I'm like, wow, it's kind of nice to have a guy who can make a play that wasn't scripted. Mm. Bill Cower joining us. So, Bill, again, the book is also about grief. And you lost your wife, Kay and your father in a matter of months in 2010. You write about being a father and helping your daughters grieve. Listen, I understand that you're a leader. I understand that you're accustomed to people always looking to you, but I also know that there is no playbook, there is no handbook for dealing with something like this. So how were you able to process your own grief and at the same time help your daughters with theirs? Yeah, you know what, uh, Ronnie, I, I think it's just being a good listener and, and recognizing that people process things differently. Um, you know, grieving is a part, as, as part of that is trying to process what you just lost. Um, I went through that earlier uh, with my father. And, you know, when Kay was diagnosed uh, in February when she came back with melanoma and we sat down and talked about what our options were, that grieving started pretty much there. I knew it was going to be a long shot for us to be able to, to overtake that. But at the same time, I had to give my girls the hope, and the same hope I would give the K was to try to fight through this, because that's what it was all about. It was, it was continuing to, 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 to fight the fight and to keep getting up, stay positive, hold on to hope. We all got to have hope. And, um, but at the same time, I was trying to be realistic and dealing with a lot of people, not just the daughters, but it was her family and all the family. And so it was, it was very challenging. It was very introspective for me. I don't know if I did the right thing. Should I brought hospice in to help us? All the girls were in different parts of their lives. All the girls are trying to process having lost their mom and they all had different relationships with them. So I just think grieving is a very personal thing. And when it's documented in the book, I did what I felt, felt was the right thing. And to also then try to bring another uh, mother figure in, into their lives by meeting uh, V when I met her and trying to explain to them that, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to, I think I love this girl. And, and so it was, you know, sharing that with the family was very personal and sharing it with the, with the world has become very, very revealing. Um, and so at the same time, if, if this memoir can help anybody else that's going down similar paths, whether it's being decisions, whether it's about a job, within the job, life outside it, family, if they can take out some little insight and wisdom from this, then it's, this book was well worth it. Bill, to that point, Bill Cowan, my guest, it's, it's extremely painful there was the initial discovery of Kay's cancerous mole and then the diagnosis of early Alzheimer's, then the melanoma. I mean, again, this is not something that you needed to write about. This is not something you had to share. Why was this part of the story that you did want to tell, and what would you like people to take from it? Well, I, I think it's, it's it, I think where we are and during the pandemic, I think it became very transparent. You know, there's a lot of things people thought you know, talk about social justice, talk about privilege, right? And, you know, I, I lived a privileged life because I had opportunities that other people didn't have. And I can just share with people like, listen, there's, there's, there's heartache and there's going to be hardships that you have through the course of, of, of life that I wanted, this is how I dealt with it. This is how I process things. And, you know, everybody has them. And again, I just, you know, I think it's something that can help people along the way. It's okay to talk about it. I just think sometimes we're, we're so sensitive to talking about things that are very 
They're hard. They're hard conversations to have. And I had those hard conversations with my daughters. I had those hard conversations with people. Um, and I just shared that with other people. I think there's a lot to be said for that because we, in our world today, we get uncomfortable when you talk about hard conversations. And I just think sometimes we got to be more transparent because I think it's a very healthy way of dealing with things. It's also a way of, of, of teaching and sharing your wisdom with other people who may be in a similar situation. I like hearing that very much. Bill Cowher joining us. The book is called Heart and Steel. It came out yesterday. Bill, one final thought. One of the things, because of the pandemic, a lot of things were put on hold. But on top of the book coming out, you're finally going to the Hall of Fame later on this year. A few weeks back, your gold jacket arrived in the mail. What was it like to rip open that package and see that gold jacket? Uh Romy, it was unbelievable. I said, only appropriately so that it was gold. I said, here I am going in there with a gold jacket, being a Steeler, and it fit perfectly, so I sent it right back to them. <laughs> and it, uh, number 331, I think I am forever. And so it's so humbling. I'll never forget that Saturday night on the CBS set uh, when David Baker came out and told me that. Um, it was almost surreal. And, it, and I remember coming home that night, I can't even – I still didn't hit me. And so um, I've been able to enjoy this for a couple of years, being able to go in there with Donnie Shell and Troy Palomalo. And the next day it'll be Alan Fanica going in. It'll be very, very special. And, uh, and it's very humbling. And again, it, it, you don't do it by yourself. It's because it's a collaboration of team and ownership and players and coaches and all the people that I was blessed to be able to work with and to work together with. And, you know, I am just a small reflection of that by going to the Hall of Fame. And, it's again, it's going to be a very, very special uh, weekend in, uh, in Canton in August, and I'm really looking forward to it. Congrats on that. Enjoy every moment of that. He is a member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame class of 2020. He is a studio analyst for the NFL Today and now an author. The book is called Heart and Steel. The book is out right now. Bill, I appreciate you. I appreciate our friendship, and congrats on all of that. So nice to have you on today, Bill. Thanks, Romy. A different future starts with you. That's why GoDaddy does more than help you find a name. You can create, sell, and get found online, so any small business could be a driving force to create change or build an empire. We know old ideas aren't cutting it anymore, so we're calling for a new generation of thinking, your way of thinking. So whatever you have in mind that will help make a different future, find everything you need to get started at GoDaddy.com. Because the future isn't decided yet. It's up to us to make it happen. Start different at GoDaddy.com. I am joined by Dalvin Cook. Dalvin, good to have you back. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me back on. It's good to have you back on. Thanks for making time for us. So when you and I spoke in November, it was after you had a couple of enormous games against Green Bay and Detroit back-to-back. You're coming off a season where you had pretty much career highs across the board, and you did it in just 14 games. I know you're looking ahead, but if I could get you to look back for a moment, when you look back on last season, what kind of thoughts do you have? Um, I just think it's set. You know, the, the platform and, you know, the standards for how things are supposed to be done around here. And, you know, just giving that language to my teammates and giving that confidence to my teammates that, you know, we could go out there and be a dominant group, you know, was fun to do. And I think we're just building on that right now. Dalvin Cook, my guest. All right, so you're coming off a massive year, but you've also made it really clear that your goal this season is not about the numbers. It's about the postseason. How badly do you want to get to the playoffs? And does this feel like a team that's got the talent to do it? Yeah, I think we felt, you know, like, like you said, going back to last year, you know, I think we, we cost ourselves some games by being an a unexperienced team, you know, just lacking in some situations and not being aware of, 
you know, how to get things done. And I think Coach Jim is doing a great job this year of, you know, enforcing those situations and, and doing those things in OTAs. So I'm hungry about this group, and this group is hungry. It's a young group. But I think, you know, we can go out there and get things done. Vikings running back Dalvin Cook, my guest. I understand that you're worried about your situation, your team. But if you look around that division, there's a lot of chaos. There's a lot of change. There's a lot of stuff going on. You've got the Aaron Rodgers situation with the Packers. I get that you're worried about your situation, but when you see what's going on, do you feel like that division is yours for the taking? Yeah, you know, there's football, but we got to show up every Sunday. Um, I, hope, I hope Aaron Rodgers get traded. <laughs> you know, I'm not playing against that guy, man. That's it's, it's a nightmare, but it's always fun. But, you know, we can we can go out there and do some special things as a group if we believe in one another and, and buy into to what this thing has for us. Do you think that they would trade him this year? I think they'll be crazy to do it. Um, he's one of the best best quarterbacks I've ever seen. You know, in my life, play football. You know, the way he controls football games and get things done. You know, it's amazing. And I've been watching him for the last past five years, and he only got better. So, you know, it'll be something mind blowing if they do. Talking to Dalvin Cook, you know, folks talk about the fact that when you're a running back and you get as many touches as you did last year, that recovery is so critical. And then you've got to be really careful about the way you prepare for the next season. And then you'll hear something like, you got to give a running back like that fewer touches so he's fresh. What's your reaction to this? Like, do you want to stay fresh or do you get better with the more work you get? I think once I catch a rhythm, it don't matter the carries. Uh, I done tapped into a routine of getting my body ready to play. Um, you know, this off season, you know, I, I beginning of well, the end of the season last year, you know, I heard things like, oh, you know, you know took a lot of carries this year. Then after that, you know, everybody tends to go into a slump. After that, I just continue to work hard. You know, I continue to build on what I did and, and you know, you know where I'm trying to go. And you know, my coach knows me the most, my running back coach KP, and he knows. You know, the more carries I get, you know, the more I get into the rhythm and the more I get going. So. Give me the ball, give me the carries, and I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a total for my team. You know, I just want to win. Dalvin Cook, my guest. You know, the key words to me right there is routine. I know that you've been focusing on your teammates, your young teammates especially, and you're trying to make the point to them that you need a routine. We all have to have routines. Like, when you talk about your routine, are we talking about a mental routine, a physical routine, a routine for your body, or is it all of the above, and why is it so critical? What do you get from that? It's all of the above because – you know, once you get a routine, and I and I and I and I just learned this probably about two two years ago, three years ago. You know, once you get a routine going, and your body's tapped into that routine, your body tends to the the trigger trigger a lot from your mind. So like, once you get into that routine, and your body know that you're in the routine, you know, your body's going to get going. It's gonna it's going to be ready to react, and it's gonna you know naturally do what it do because that's what it's reacting to. And I think my body has got into a routine of just getting up in the morning, you know, going to work, and and doing what I do. Is that kind of like the routine sets it up so it's like, this is what we do, this is what we do, and you don't think about it, you just get it done? Is that what a routine does for you? Yep, yep. You don't think, you just, you just, you just lock in to, to what you know best at doing to get yourself ready to do whatever you got to do. If it's going to a meeting or if it's going on the field for practice, whatever, whatever, you gotta, whatever your routine is to get your body going to go out there and you know, make a play or do something, that's what you got to do. See, I'm totally into this because I'm trying to figure out exactly what it can do for me, although you and I have totally different jobs. The routine, like, aren't there days, Dalvin, where, man, maybe you're just busted up. Maybe you're just not feeling it. Maybe you do not want to go to that meeting or don't want to go to the gym. Does the routine, if it's set up, it kind of helps you fight through all that, doesn't it? 
Yeah, yo, and, and like I said, your body normally reacts. It, it wakes up, you know, just knowing, like, you know, this is what I'm doing every day. This is what I've been doing every day. Your body normally reacts to that. And, you know, I have my days where I come in sluggish from the, the day before, just tired. And I, and I know I have got my rest before, but, like, it's just the body's just just reacting like that. And once you get into that routine that morning, you naturally catch yourself just waking up and, and, and ready to go. Like, I wonder, like, your body knows. Like, your body already knows the routine. The body knows that this is the rule. I mean, how much of it's about that? And then how much of it, like, can you rewire your brain? Is that what you're doing? Yeah, definitely. And I think and I think always your mind is the key to the body. And, you know, I got a guy in my room, um, you know, Amir Abdullah. He's a big guy, like, you know, focusing on his body and stuff like that. And, you know, he meditates and stuff like that. Just just seeing how he puts his mind in a different place and his body responds, you know, it's, it's amazing to see. Dalvin Cook joining us. I find that stuff really, really interesting. So the league adds a 17th game this year, and as a result, well, as a result, what's that do to your routine? Does that change your routine? Um, I don't think it changes. I think, I think you lift a little more. You um, you do a little more, and I think it's going to take about week eight, probably week six or seven, something like that, to know what exactly that I'm going to have to do to get my body ready to go. And it's just it's a process, and I'm I'm ready for the task. Dalvin Cook joining us. All right, so I had your teammate Justin Jefferson on the program a couple of times, and both times we ended up talking about the gritty. First off, what do you make of that dance and the way he broke it out last year after his first TD? Um, I think just him, you know, coming in and being who he was and not shying away from being Justin Jefferson. Just just him coming in, you know, establishing the greedy in the league, you know, him going out there catching for them numbers and them touchdowns was amazing to watch. And I think that came from him just coming in from day one. Saying, I'm going to be Justin Jefferson. I ain't going to be nobody else. I'm going to come out here and make plays and, and make football fun like it's always been. Dude, and, you know, you've seen, a, you've seen a kid grow up right in front of us. I think that's great. Like, is it me or did I see a video of you break one out a few days ago on the practice field? And if so, how does your version compare to his? I ain't as good as him. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not as fluent as him. No, I don't got as much rhythm as him, but I'm close. I can't be on the team with, with the goat of the, of, the, of the gritty and not know how to gritty. So I, 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 got, I had to learn. Agreed. Listen, from the outside, it seems like there's just some great relationships in that locker room. Like, you're on the inside, I'm on the outside, so bring me inside. How would you describe the chemistry that you all have together? Yeah, the guys that have been here, you know, we, we, we dialed in. We, we, um, we familiar with each other. That, 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 we got that relationship as far as we don't even got to speak. We know, you know, how we want things done, how things are supposed to be done. Getting these younger guys to to follow our lead and lead them in the best way as possible before we could be successful as an organization is the key. So, you know, we got a young team. I think we're the second youngest team in the league. So we're just trying to get everybody on board to, to go to go win this team. Yeah, it seems to me like that's so important. So let me finally ask you, it's important to have guys and leaders within the room, but it starts at the top, right? Like I've got a lot of respect for Mike Zimmer as a head coach. What's he been like to play for? And then how much does he set the tone for everybody on that team? It's fun um, going against so. Going against, you know, a, a Zim defense in practice, or just just being around because Zim, you know, it's fun. You know, once he's in once he's in that mode, though, he mad. But overall, I think he's one of the best coaches I've been around. He is a two-time Pro Bowl selection, coming off a career high fifteen hundred and fifty-seven rushing yards last season. 
The Vikings going to open up against Cincinnati on September 12th. Dalvin Cook is my guest. Dalvin, I appreciate you very much, and it's great to have you on the show once again, man. Thanks so much for doing that. Thank y'all so much. Good night now!